Okay, are we, are we good on the recording? Test one, two. Sounds good. Okay. Okay, go, go ahead. ahead. How do people see monitoring and evaluation in one word? Not again. Challenging. Burdensome or burden. Burden. But I think that that's starting to change. What could monitoring and evaluation be? Um, um, an opportunity. Opportunity. I like that. An opportunity for improvement. What would you say? See, I think for me, there might be a lot to learn, but that once you once you do, you can see how useful it is. I want to make data fun. You are listening to the Monitoring and Evaluation Technical Assistance. Or Meta Podcast. Improving the collection, management, analysis, and use of data. To improve outcomes to refugees in the U.S. Brought to you from the International Rescue Committee with the support of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Meta. Welcome to the Meta Podcast. My name is Meg Gibbon, and I'm Meta's Program Officer. Today, we're going to be talking about an exciting research project called Refugees in Towns. And to tell us about it, I'm so happy to be joined by two great guests. First, Karen Jacobson, professor at Tufts University Fletcher School and director of the Refugees and Forced Migration Program at the Feinstein International Center. She also leads the Refugees in Towns project, as well as Charles Simpson, program administrator for Refugees in Towns at the Feinstein Center. Karen and Charles, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Hello. Thank you, Meg. So I thought we would jump right into it. And can you tell us a little bit about the Refugees in Towns project and its goals, especially as they relate to communities in the U.S.? Well, we started this project about a year ago when um, we were just sort of in the midst of the changes and redirection of the refugee program here in the U.S., So because I'm also particularly interested in the urban experience of refugees, we decided to to focus on towns where refugees have been settled or have sought asylum. And our focus is to try to understand what enables integration of refugees in towns. So when we think about integration, it's not just a matter of refugees becoming integrated But it's more a sort of a mutual integration where both refugees become integrated and local populations, the native or host population, also makes changes and adjusts to accept and allow refugees and and welcome refugees into them and, and make changes that way. So we focused on towns in America initially, but then we also thought this was an interesting issue to look at globally. So we're now We have case studies in many different countries in Europe, in the Middle East, in Africa, and we're pushing out toward Asia and Central America now. I'll stop there for now. That's a really good overview. I'd maybe emphasize our two goals because we have these case studies that are both as Karen's described, very global, but also very locally rooted, we're able to find two kinds of, of outcomes. One is, is very practically relevant at the, at the local level of the neighborhood or the city, where we're identifying the kinds of challenges and what's going well with integration at that level so that um, stakeholders in that town can actually learn from these findings or share them with adjacent towns or other towns going through similar experiences. But because we have that that global reach and it's tied into bigger themes of integration and migration, we're also moving toward developing theory of integration. So a, a more generalized sense of 
what goes well and what doesn't, what's supportive and what's obstructive of, of integration in a more general sense, um, so that more academic, broader scale objective. That makes sense. And I think that's a topic that's extremely interesting to the refugee service providers in the U.S. and, of course, to communities as we continue to think more and more about integration. You mentioned case studies, and I wanted to pause. And for those who may not be familiar, can you explain what a case study is and when you might choose that method? Well, one thing we're doing that's that's different with this project is we're really trying to focus on understanding the experience of urban integration from the perspective of people who live and work in the cities or towns. So we think of this, we call it localized research. And the idea is that we find people who are from the town, or it could be that this person is someone who's a local person from the town, or the person could be a refugee or a migrant living in the town, or even a an agency worker or a, an aid worker. And we, we help them figure out how to write up a case study about their experience and their perspective on what's happening in their town. And what we mean by a case study is it's usually a rather short, maybe 10 or 12, sometimes a bit longer, page study that identifies three things. First, we want them to map the city. So develop a map of where refugees are living in the city, and, and how they relate to other groups in the city who might be there, other refugee groups, other migrant groups. So there's first the mapping. Then we ask people to think about how the town has been affected as a result of the refugee inflow. So, for example, what impact it's had on services or on infrastructure, on housing, how it's affected the employment market or the housing market how it's, it's maybe improved or built capacity in certain sectors, or maybe it's had negative impacts in some sectors. So we ask them to think about the impact on the town. And then the third piece is the refugees' own experience, how they've coped, what changes they've had to make, what their struggles are, but also particularly what their successes and forms of resilience are. So those three things, mapping, the impact on the town, and the refugees' experience, we ask each of our researchers to think about those pieces and just write from their own experience. Maybe they'll do some interviews, or maybe it's great ethnographic participatory observation. And then we ask them to write it up, and then we, we work on the case study ourselves, edit it, send it back a few times, and then we make these case studies available. One other point, Meg, to your question about um, when you might use this this case study localized approach uh, as opposed to other methods, um, a few advantages and why we we sort of chose to go this direction is that it brings a level of depth and, and texture that you wouldn't get from just a desk review of literature or from, say, a wide-scale um, large-end survey that might be very broad but more superficial when we're thinking about um, integration, a lot of that process is very personalized. It, it carries a lot of, of nuance. It's very complicated where there's a whole bunch of different migrant groups. The host community itself is very diverse. So to have someone who's locally linked and can bring their own social networks, their uh, native proficiency with relevant languages, you're able to identify themes that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. The other advantage is um, the integration experience is always linked to place. 
integration happens somewhere. We talk about social integration, which is kind of this abstract concept, but um, you become socially integrated in a park or at a community center. And so that approach, because it's so localized and because we have this emphasis on mapping, also allows us to think about you know, where services are placed, how distance or proximity to um, public spaces may influence integration, your distance to uh, your employer, how that factors in. So for those kinds of questions, we're finding this this approach is, is really effective. Definitely. It is such an interesting data collection method. And I'm interested in hearing more about the synthesis and analysis. Can you tell us more about how this data is being analyzed and interpreted? So we start each case study very localized. Obviously, the researchers are living in that setting. But by asking a common set of themes, the ones that Karen just overviewed, then we can draw comparisons and we're also able to get people to to just talk with each other. So we'll we'll set up these meetings where we'll have someone in Jalalabad and someone in um, Cape Town and someone in Boston, and we can all uh, talk. And through these conversations, you end up finding commonalities that gentrification and limited housing ends up being a common theme in Augusta, Maine, in East Boston, and in Hamburg. But then one of those towns, Hamburg, has done a very good job of approaching that challenge. So you start to pick up lessons that may be transferable. Um, And because each of those researchers who are bringing that knowledge are locally rooted, they can talk about what may be particular to that town that allowed that to happen or may not be transferable. So the kind of good governance in Hamburg may not be applicable in other towns in the world. I'm so glad you mentioned these different lessons learned that you have seen across different communities, whether it's internationally in the U.S. uh, and some of the connections there. I'm wondering if you can expand a bit on that and talk about how some of those key findings or key takeaways from the case studies might be able to be used. uh, And in particular, if there are any programmatic implications of interest to refugee service providers. Yeah, that's actually what one of the goals of the project. We're hoping this coming year, our next, our second year, that we will have at least one, but hopefully several regional workshops or conferences where we're able to share our findings and sort of customize them for the region. So, so that's something that's going to be happening this year. Specifically for, for service agencies, we on our advisory board specifically work with them to try to make our project relevant for them. So, for example, you know, some of our findings might be to do with what role aid agencies and service agencies can play in promoting some of the less obvious aspects of integration. For example, one relatively neglected area in integration is looking at the role of religious organizations in bridging capital. Bridging capital is a term we use to refer to how refugee communities link to and engage with and develop networks with non-refugee or host communities. So what are the ways in which service agencies can engage with religious organizations to promote the bridging uh, process that is such an important piece of integration? And what are the ways in which service agencies can engage with local governments, private families, and the private sector? What are some other ways in which um, agencies can help refugees integrate? So these are some of the questions that we're driving toward in this project. Yeah, what what Karen's pointing to here is is integration is this big 
umbrella and there's a lot of components that go into it, housing, access to services, everything from education to healthcare. It's social and cultural, linguistic, economic. But those the components that are being emphasized by service provision aren't always the components that are emphasized by refugees themselves or by host communities. So one thing that we're finding is that it's important to get a sense for how these different groups are understanding integration and what they're choosing to focus on. Uh, So in the U.S. context, for example, the economic component of integration is usually the chief metric being used by the federal government uh, and then by extension donors and the volunteer agencies and other service providers. Talking more um, with refugee communities and host communities, often the emphasis is more on um, social integration, which Karen was talking about, that bridging capital. Um, Do you have American friends? Do you belong to community groups? And because, again, we're we're locally rooted, but also are are looking at broader themes, we're able to bridge those um, two narratives. The ways of thinking about integration are actually compatible what we'd find in some cases is you're able to to get that job that's providing the economic self-sufficiency because of that social capital. Um, but we're bringing some nuance as to how you may emphasize programming where you may not just fixate on job placement, but also building that social capital as a means to achieve the economic integration. Absolutely. It sounds like case studies have been a really productive and really interesting method. And I wonder, too, if you have any general advice for those who might be interested themselves in exploring case studies as a potential data collection method, whether for you know a research project or even in a smaller data collection context that might be related to a particular program or understanding a smaller question than something as broad as uh, defining integration. So. We are really interested to work with people to help them develop their own projects. We have tools on our website. We have literature. We have uh, different approaches that we can make available to people. The whole project is publicly available. But in particular, I want to encourage people who are interested in doing a case study for us to work with us. We are very keen to have people who are living and working in these towns, whether they're refugees or not refugees or migrants of any kind. We're always very keen for people to be in touch or just even to hear people's experience and also to link to other projects that might be going on that are exploring urban experience. And I'll leave Charles to add more. I'm sure there's more. Yeah, one thing that we found that I would recommend is adjusting the way that you assess the skill set of the researchers you're um, you're using to do to do the case study. What we find is most important tends to be just having the right disposition or attitude to do qualitative research. Somebody who can sit down with a whole range of different personalities and and do a, a really free flowing interview. Um, and someone with just a fundamental mental aptitude for making sense of kind of complicated social situations. Uh, Also being open to um, a range of language skills, being willing to be patient with English language and and having that person having native proficiency in Arabic or Pashto or Dari, so they're able to communicate um, with the populations you're interested in, as well as having those social networks. So those are two recommendations I'd point to. 
Great. And we'll be sure to share links to some of those resources you mentioned, as well as all of the Refugees in Town's contact information on the Meta website. And we'll absolutely encourage any listeners who are interested in potentially connecting with you two uh, to reach out, because I think it's an exciting opportunity. Uh, and I want to just give a huge thank you to our speakers for this fascinating conversation today. We uh, have come to the end of our podcast, as well as a thank you to our listeners for joining us. To let us know what you think of the Meta podcast and tell us other topics you want to hear about, email us at meta at rescue.org. Follow us on Twitter at US Meta Support. You can find past podcasts and other ME related resources at our website, metasupport.org. Thank you again, Karen and Charles. Great. Thank you, Meg. Thank you, Meg. It was fun.